You're listening to Knowing Faith, a podcast of training the church. Hey, welcome to Knowing Faith, the podcast of Village Church Resources. I'm Kyle Worley. I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin. Hey. JT English. Hey. Hey, what's up? I don't know what direction you guys are going. <laughs> yeah. It looks like on my screen. You oh, do. really? Perfect. It's not on mine. It's but you did a really good job with the song this time. That was perfect. Thank you. It's like the introduction to the Brady Bunch, right? When they're all like looking at each other. Uh-huh. I remember as a kid being like, that's crazy how they shot that and everybody could see each other like that. But then, of course, I didn't understand how TV worked. So, um, I like the screen looks because I can look down on JT. <laughs> oh, get used to, don't, don't get used to it. It's the only time it's going to happen. He's also beneath me, but in, the, in a different direction here. Um, I'm going to text Ryan see if you can change this. <laughs> Um, on today's episode, we're going to keep going through the book of Acts, and uh, we're going to join Paul as he starts a kind of start-stop, two steps forward, one step back journey to Rome. Um, having been arrested and kept in custody, we're then going to pick up the story there and just, just roll through this. We, this will be this is our second-to-last episode on the book of Acts. We'll do another episode, which will be our final episode on the book of Acts next week, and next week we'll also be recording what will be the concluding sermons of this season of Knowing Faith. And so uh, you can join us for those. I think they're going live. We tentatively have it set for 1 to 3 o'clock next Wednesday afternoon. We might be moving that to the evening. We don't know, but you can just keep following the Village Church Twitter handle, and they'll keep you updated on when it's going to be and how you can get access to it. If you've jumped on, we're really glad that you've jumped on. This is streaming to live, and then uh, we'll post it later as a resource on YouTube, and then it will also go up as a podcast. And so um, if you – are listening to it later. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Thanks for following along. Um, and we'll have an opportunity to submit questions uh, during kind of intermission between the first episode we're doing today, which is on Acts, and the second episode we're doing, which is on the Bible, the end times, and global pandemics and crises, and how to think about all those things together without thinking, I don't know, thinking wrongly. And so we'll be doing that as well, and there'll be an intermission time in between. If you submit questions, we can either get your questions in that intermission time or after the second episode, and so we'd love to be able to do that. We can answer all the questions, but if you submit them through the YouTube chat, then we'll get them, and we can uh, maybe get to some of them during our time. So, hey, Jim, JT, what have you guys been doing during Shelter in Place? What, how are you staying sane? Taking lots of walks, gardening, uh, hanging out with my kids. We've been watching, rewatching some of our favorite movies. Yeah. Been, it's been, you know, it's, I'm, we're enjoying each other so far. There hasn't been any uh, attempts at homicide. I think we're so far, but it's something like this is going to stretch on for a while. So yeah, it does. Uh, what's a favorite? What's a favorite movie? Well, so you know, new Emma came out, and you can stream it even though it was in theaters because you can't go to a theater. Right. And we watched it and we really liked it, but there's a there's a PBS version that's significantly longer, and you know we got time to burn. So Claire and I went back and started uh, started watching that one again. It's been really good. Yeah. Awesome. You're awesome. lucky. I want, I want to shelter in place with your family, your kids. They're the best. Man, Claire started baking. Although you know nobody can find flour, so I'm like we're gonna need to space out these baking projects. But uh, she made lemon bars yesterday, and we made this risotto. I made lemon bars yesterday. Did you? They were not good. I heated up frozen tacos. <laughs> we made I, bet, I bet Claire's were better. We made this risotto and we all fought over it. It's been, I mean, in a, in a friendly, you know, collegial way, we fought over the risotto. But it was, I mean, we're having some nice uh, 
cooking experiments with one another and yeah, FaceTime and family. What are you guys doing? JT? I'm basically doing the same thing. We're just kind of hanging out, getting some reading, writing done. Um, lots of walks. <laughs> two nights ago, it rained two days ago, you know, pretty hard. And it was about 4 p.m. And I was like, family, get the rain jackets on. I have got to get out of this house. So we bundled the kids up. Bartlett got all wet. And we went on a four-mile in-the-rain walk. And it felt really good. It was nice. Um, that's really about it. We're watching a lot of PBS, too. We watched Downton Abbey when it first came out. So yeah. we are we are re-watching Downton Abbey. Uh, I think I might have mentioned that on here before, but there's something about just that soundtrack and that music that after what can be kind of a high stress, crazy day, that's just like, <laughs> I also, I also had some anxiety the other day, nothing crazy, but it was just like, Oh my gosh, what is going to happen? So I watched a Churchill movie and it got me all pumped. <laughs> you like, that's worse. <laughs> yeah, that's worse. <laughs> uh, hey JT, on that note, any big, uh, any big transitions in your life right now? Yeah, we got a really big one. Uh, I'm not sure if Known Faith listeners have heard or seen, but I'm currently uh, in between two Sundays of becoming a candidate to be a lead pastor of a church in Arvada, Colorado called Storyline Fellowship. So last Sunday I was announced there and we told the members at the village that I'm candidating. So another thing I'm doing this week is I have 17 Zoom calls with different uh, groups at Storyline Fellowship, women's ministry, men's ministry, home groups. Uh, and it's been, it's been really sweet to get to know them. So I've been on zoom a lot. So honestly, if you guys could pray for Macy and I, we're trying to figure out, uh, first of all, the, the, one of the saddest things in our life is, is, is leaving the village. Uh, it has just been such a gift and a joy to be at the village. And how do you do that in the middle of a pandemic? Like we're going to have to leave Dallas without a hug, uh, if we get voted in also just pray that, that the church would clearly hear from the Lord of, of whether I'm supposed to be the lead pastor there or not. So they'll, I, I preach in view of a call this Sunday virtually, uh, which is hard for them. I know it's hard for me. Like I, I had to preach to a camera, you know, to the to my first my first sermon to this church. But I'm excited for them to hear it. Uh, I really hope they vote yes because that's gonna I'm gonna have to go into like medical device sales or something like that if they don't. Um, and so they'll, they'll live and people can like vote up and vote down. Well. Oh gosh, that is- can you imagine if preachers had to see uh, <laughs> like mid. Like, oh my God, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> yeah, that, that is, it's because it's already <coughs> painful to watch yourself. I mean, yeah. it's just so painful to watch yourself teach. But then if you were seeing like the live, like, oh, oh that would be yeah. brutal. So they'll vote this Sunday night and uh, Lord willing, uh, they'll call me to be their next lead pastor. And then we've got to try to figure out how do you, how do you move? How do you start pastoring a church virtually uh, over the next coming weeks and months? But we're trusting the Lord to, to care for us in all of it. Man. Well, and I think the big question everybody's wondering is, didn't you guys get these questions on Twitter? When does, no. when does the NBA start again? <laughs> I got a lot of questions about is knowing faith ending. Yeah. What's happens with knowing faith? Kyle, you got any thoughts on that? Yeah. So what I can tell you is that there is not a future in which Jen and JT and I are not doing something together. Um, so <laughs> if you, right. If you, if you enjoy right, this, <laughs> if you enjoy this content, um, I can guarantee you this content will still be available to you because we're friends and uh, we're our friendship exceeds beyond just working together at the same church. I mean, when I left, it wasn't like we were like, oh well, I guess we're done here. Um, we and about so, it what we talked about it though. Yeah, you guys did. You're like, well, let's just <laughs> this is a perfect time to get rid of, get rid of the weak link. Um, and uh, 
but uh, yeah, so we're, uh, we are right now talking about what that'll look like and how it'll be and what it'll be set up as, but we already collaborate outside of, uh, of this and on a lot of different fronts. That's not going to change. And so if you enjoy Knowing Faith podcast, I can promise you, you will, uh, and you like the dynamic of us talking and you find that that's helpful, fruitful, or fun for you, that's not going to stop. You will still have access to do it. We'll still be putting that out there. We will take a break after our, uh, after our spring season like we always do. Um, and so we're in the last four or five episodes of recording for this season. And then beyond that, um, we uh, will be looking through the summer to do some special things like we've done in the past and then going into the fall, um, something. Um, for you guys. So we're, we're dreaming and thinking we got some real creative ideas. Uh, and I think we've got some real fun things coming down the pipe for listeners of knowing faith. So that's that. But JT, outside of that, man, we're honestly, it's incredibly bittersweet. Um, love you, man. I can't imagine you not being up the road um, for me and down the road from Jen. Um, but man, we, I'm excited for you, man. Like I just cannot imagine the blessing that storylines about to receive. So Okay. We love you. Thank we are we are heartbroken, but we're also really excited about what might be ahead of us. And a lot of that, a lot of that. I think you and I and Jen had like four or five conversations because a big part of me thinking about about uh, you know applying and candidating there was I'm only going if I still get to do this with you guys, right? Like you guys are, you know. So it's a big deal that we're going to still get the opportunity to do this stuff too. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's get to it. Let's do it. Um, so last time uh, that we were with Paul, he was in Felix's custody uh, with Felix basically trying to extort him. Like that's what was going on. Like Felix had him in jail and it says, you know, essentially Felix comes with his wife. He hears him talk about Jesus. Felix is alarmed and he says, uh, when I get an opportunity, I'll summon, summon you go away for the present. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given him by Paul. So he sent for him and, and often and conversed with him. So Felix is a bad actor. Surprise, surprise. Um, and uh, he is trying to extort Paul. He's got him in custody. And there's about to be a changing of the guard here. But maybe it'd be good, Jen, could you just – I know that we're getting to the end of this book. So now catching us up on the book of Acts feels like a – wow, that's kind of crazy. But could you give us maybe some more recent highlights? How did How did Paul end up in custody here? Why is he here? Why is this a problem? Yeah, he had taken an offering up from the churches that had been established in Asia Minor and took it to the church at Jerusalem. Uh, and when he got there, the Jews decided that he was a very bad Jew. And so they, um, they basically raised a rabble and um, he had to be arrested for his own safety, basically. And then when he was in custody, um, he mentioned uh, the fact that he was a Roman citizen and ends up appealing to be heard by Caesar. So we've had his three missionary journeys, and now you get his his last journey in the book of Acts, which is the journey toward Rome, where he will receive an audience with Caesar at some point. And so, yeah, when Felix shows up on the scene, um, he is, he's, uh, it's interesting, one of the things we've seen in the book of Acts is the centurions are always these really upstanding guys, and the officials are usually not. And so in the case of Felix, that's what you see, he's just kind of a manipulator and um, he's, he's always trying to do things for personal gain. And um, he's actually uh, been a, a terrible ruler who the reason that he goes out of the picture at the end of chapter 24 is because he gets recalled to Rome for being awful at his job. So 
So in, in, that's good. That's a good update. Uh, and, and when Felix get re, gets recalled, he is succeeded by a guy named, guy named Portius Festus, mm-hmm. um, who leaves Paul in prison because he wants to do the Jews a favor. So let's just pause. Can we talk about these names for a second? I mean, we got Felix. We got Festus. I'm just thinking like. It's like cat names. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm thinking. If you're a Felix or a Festus listening in and a Knowing Faith listener, thank you for listening. But these are very unique names, I think. Um, and uh, Festus meets with Paul. And in that meeting with Paul, Paul appeals to Caesar. Help us understand why, one, why can Paul do this? Like, like I, I think for a lot of people, especially in this back half of Acts, all of a sudden Paul's Roman citizenship becomes a very significant part of his argument. And we saw it the last time that we talked through the book of Acts that all of a sudden Paul is appealing to his citizenship in a way that like kind of like it saves his hide. Yeah. So how, how is that working? Why can Paul do this? What was unique about being a citizen of Rome? And what is, what's going on when he appeals to Caesar? Why doesn't he just appeal to Jesus and say, I'm not afraid of you guys. You know, Jesus is Lord. He's basically trying to stretch his life expectancy at this point because the Jews are not just, uh, they don't just want him in prison. They, they want to kill him at this point. And we saw when he was being held previously that there was this um, sect, these zealots who were going to starve themselves basically until they could kill him. And their plan is thwarted. But then by the time we get to Acts chapter 25, you find out in verse three, it says, um, that when the principal men of the Jews come and lay their their case out, it says in, in verse three, they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So now it's not just this rando group of zealots who are going to starve themselves. Now it's the principal Jewish leaders who want to kill Paul. And um, and so everybody knows what's going on. It's kind of a game of cat and mouse. And Festus now has the problem put into his um, jurisdiction and has to figure out what to do. And he's in this tough spot because basically all of the players know that Paul has, there are no credible charges against Paul at this point. And so all of the Roman officials are in this awkward place of being like, great, am I the guy who's got to roll this up the chain and look like a a dingling because there's really nothing here. Uh, And so, uh, and then you've got the Jews who are like, just give us a clear shot at him out in the open and and we'll take him out. Yeah. Which you're going to see for Festus is actually something he's willing to, that's an idea he's willing to entertain because it would simplify his problems a whole lot. But Paul knows that the moment that he is out of Roman custody, he's probably dead at this point. So he's going to appeal to Caesar so that he can stay alive longer. And also because he knows that it will give him access to people that he wouldn't otherwise have access to. Jen, one question I've always had here is like, I remember the first time I read this and it was like, whoa, an appeal to Caesar. Like that feels like you just went over like 10 chains of command. It feels like what was kind of maybe a local dispute is now rising to this massive, uh, you know, political ruler, it'd be like uh, having an issue here in Flower Mound in dealing with state, you know, maybe city officials or county officials and saying, I'd like an audience with the president. That's kind of the way I think of it. Is this that big of a deal? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And I didn't see a lot in the commentaries on it, which is interesting because that does feel really important. Um, I think that um, what you're seeing is this growing sense among the Roman Empire of, wait, is this a dangerous sect or not? Like how much we need to pay attention to this. And you're going to see that when he gets to Rome, like he sits for two years. Like right. No, but it's not like this is the top of the docket for anybody in Rome. So really what he's doing is he is um, 
triggering the Roman legal mechanism and then being sort of carried along in the stream. On the one hand, I think he would love to have an appeal. He would love to have an audience with Caesar. Um, But on the other hand, he is, he's like playing his last card in terms of being able to preserve his life at this particular point. And I think one of the things that I remember the first time I was walking through this passage with a Bible study group, this was years and years ago in college. And um, somebody asked, well, isn't this cowardly for Paul to do, to appeal to Caesar? Because like, wouldn't, shouldn't Paul just say, listen, I've done nothing wrong. God will vindicate me. And what's up, Macy? I see you, Caesar. (laughs) I thought that was going to be Thomas. I was like, okay, buddy, here we go. (laughs) Uh, you coffee? I think that's a good. Oh yeah, that's yeah, right. If you've got Thomas making you coffee, you have trained up a child. I didn't know it was coffee was coming in. I was like, uh oh, I want to be that guy that's on the news. <laughs> oh man, but but uh, this idea, and I've heard it a couple of times um, when when going through this, that Paul's appeal here isn't this kind of like he's showing a mark of weakness that he didn't trust the Lord enough to bring him through. But I do think that that misunderstands what is a very complex political philosophy and a political theology that yeah. the Bible is developing. It's not monolithic. And I think that one of the things that we often do, I think particularly in descriptive and narrative passages of scripture is try to hyper spiritualize just the ordinary course of life. Like Paul is not doing something that's cowardly. He is using, and just like he says in Romans 13, he is submitting to the governing authorities. They're there to check unrestrained injustice and evil. He knows the charge that's been brought against him is not fair. It's not equitable. And under Roman law, it hasn't been brought in a manner uh, that is convincing, persuasive, or legally coherent. And so he's appealing. I mean, in some ways, he's modeling, saying like, hey, look, this is how you can still submit. He's not going to deny that Christ is Lord. He's not going to quit preaching the gospel. He's not going to do either of those two things. He is going to say... This is an unjust accusation, and the systems that God, through common grace, has allowed to be present at this moment, at this time, in my part of the world, uh, should be used to check that kind of injustice, whether in reference to Paul or to somebody else. So, no, I don't think it is the cowardly thing. I think, if anything, it's Paul being very consistent with with what we find in his teaching elsewhere, which is— Well, we've talked about this the last few episodes. He's being very shrewd. I mean, I think it's important for, for Christians to realize that um, we are supposed to be as innocent and doves, but also as shrewd as serpents and finding ways to use the mechanisms, systems, and institutions of our world to further the cause of the gospel can sometimes feel like, well, that really isn't relying on the Holy Spirit, or that's really not, as you've just highlighted, Kyle, trusting God. But to use those things for a way to either make appeals for ourselves or for the mission to go forward, uh, of course, can that go badly? Yes, uh, it can go very badly. We're not looking for power for power's sake. We want to operate with humility and weakness, but at the same time, it'd be foolishness not to use those kinds of, of means to, to further the gospel, to further the cause of the church. Well, and I think that we're meant to understand something that Paul understood, and that's that at this point, he's safer in the hands of the Gentiles than he is in the hands of his own people. Yeah. You know, it's that whole message has been consistent throughout the book of um, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. To me, the, the most shocking thing at this point in the narrative is that he continues to address Jews, yeah. asking them to to respond to the call of the gospel. Because I think when he when he appeals to Rome, he's he's like, I mean, you know, the Lord told me that I was called to the Gentiles. So kind of the most obvious thing for him to do is to place himself in proximity to Gentiles at this point. 
Yeah. So it's, I don't think it's cowardly. I think it's him pursuing the mission that God has placed on his life, but he doesn't do so with disregard for where he came from, for the people that he, that, that are his origin, who he loves and, and cares for and, and wants to see called to faith. Yep. So uh, Paul uh, talks to Festus and uh, at the end of 25, verse 12, you see, then Festus, when he had conferred, conferred with his counsel, answered to Caesar, you have appealed to Caesar, you shall go. So, so Festus hears the same thing that Felix had heard from Paul, which is the same thing he had invoked right before he was about to be tortured, essentially, uh, after being arrested uh, earlier in chapter 24, 23. Um, and uh, he says, I want to go to Caesar. And Festus says, all right, you get to go to Caesar. I mean, like, that's as easy as it is. And then, and then it says some days pass, and you have Agrippa the king and Bernice who arrive at Caesarea, and they greet Festus. So enter Agrippa. Who is Agrippa to Festus? We're getting this chain of command here of like, okay, we had Felix who was replaced by Festus, Festus who is now sending Paul to Caesar, and then Agrippa shows up. And he's referred to here as the king. Who is this guy? Well, he's the king of Judea, and so he is basically the king of the Jews for all intents and purposes. And he, if you'll remember back in chapter 12, his daddy is the guy who wanted to be worshipped as a god and fell over and was eaten by worms. So he comes from a long line of of shining examples of uh, corruption and and self-adulation. And we'll see some of that show up in the way that he himself was portrayed, but not only that, he is uh, Bernice here. Um, when you just are reading along, it sounds at first blush like he has shown up with his wife. Um, the text is intentionally ambiguous in the way that she's presented. She is, in fact, his sister. And so even though he is the king of the Jewish um, region, so to speak, of Judea, um, he is not loved by the Jews because he is in a very questionable relationship with his sister. Wow. Okay. Yeah, he did not know this. But he's brought in because he he has some sense of what's going on. He's a, basically Festus calls him in almost like a consultant. He's like, okay. hey, can I put your eyes on this and your opinion on this? Because you know a little bit about the dynamics of what's happening here. Okay. So in verse 23, we hear that they came in. I love this verse. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. That is, I mean, that's that's a great phrase. Um like how we start the Knowing Faith podcast. Right, exactly. With great pomp in certain And Paul, once again, has an opportunity to begin to testify. And this time he's before Agrippa, the king of the Jews, king of Judea. Um, and that's what he does. He starts out his defense. How does his defense begin in uh, chapter 26? Um, he basically does what he has done before. Um, he, he walks back through all the particulars. Um, and he says that he, and he's already said to Festus, look, I'm not guilty of treason. I'm not guilty of heresy. I'm not guilty of desecrating the temple. I haven't done anything that they've said. And now he's going to build it out as we've seen him build it out before. And he starts by proclaiming himself as a law abiding Jew, mm-hmm. um, which think about, you know, now, you know, who he's talking to Agrippa is, He's not a full Jew, but also he is certainly not a law-abiding Jew. Um, And then he says in verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers. And so then he's going to take what he's done before, and he's going to present it as the most logical conclusion to everything that the Jews believe about the law and the prophets. And what he's trying to do is show, hey, this thing um, that, that, that the way, this sect that I am a part of, 
um, should be of no greater um, concern or threat to you than the Jews are. Because if he can establish that, then um, the Jewish leaders are every bit as guilty of what they're accusing him of. And, and that'll shift the, the dynamic and how the, the case plays out. Yeah. yeah I, think, I think verse six is the, is the key right there because like, and he's also kind of slapping the, the Jews around a little bit <laughs> where, where, where he's saying like, I, I'm, I'm the one who actually believes what you say you believe. Right. Like right. the hope that, like the reason you've brought me here, I'm actually the one who's believing in that hope. The promise that you hope beyond all hope that, was given to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was given us th- through the prophets and through the law, that's been fulfilled. That's happened. And I'm actually the one who believes it. So it's kind of a, a great twi- twist and irony that that's why he's even there. I think yeah. my favorite verse in the whole chapter was verse eight, because he says, he says, and now he says in verse six, and now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by the Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you? God raises the dead. Yeah. That's awesome. (laughs) It is. It is. I mean, it really, I think this right here is such a, like, I mean, obviously he's going to get into a greater explanation of his own conversion and the relationship between his life and the life of Christ. But in this little condensed summary, you get Paul's kind of self-conception, like, it's a very clear articulation of how Paul conceives of himself. Listen, I am a Jew. I was raised there. I, I was law abiding. I was listening to the voice of the prophets and the law. And God opened up my eyes to see Christ Jesus as the true and sure fulfillment of that. And, and you, you're caught up on the reality that God raised Jesus from the dead. Like that kind of sense of being confounded by the unbelief of his kinsmen um, and then he moves into talking about like, I get it. I was convinced. Right. And that's where he goes from verse nine. That's the pivot is like, listen, how could you not believe God raised Christ Jesus from the dead? Look, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus. So now he enters into the perspective of his audience, both Agrippa and the wider Jewish audience um, that is accusing him and, and, and blaming him and calling for his death. And, you know, he says like, I get it. I I felt the same way that you do. And I actually went and took action. I did what you're doing to me, to other people. Right. So like, it's a really. It was more successful at it. Exactly. Yeah. No, you're right. So he, 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 he moves, he starts with kind of his, his defense starts with, this is who I am. This is where I was. And then he starts talking about the Damascus road experience. Right. So he starts to talk about his conversion story and that's where it goes starting in verse 12, and he says, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus. So he's referencing in the connection of what? Punishing the followers of the way with authority and commission of the chief priests. And then he tells his story. At midday, I saw a bright light. I fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Um, It's hard for you to kick against the goads. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture. But what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com.
Have you ever wondered what is God's heart towards you? In this noisy world, God's heart beats hard with love and mercy. But how can God share his heart with us when he doesn't have our attention? You're invited to spend 100 days discovering the beautiful, merciful heart of God with Overflowing Mercies, a new devotional by Craig Allen Cooper. The Lord is not ashamed of you or quick-tempered toward your faults. Each one of your weaknesses, faults, frailties, and failures does more to arouse God's love than to stir up His anger. If you could fathom in some small way how warmly God truly feels about you, the faintest grasp of His immeasurable affection would reduce you to tearful wonder and heartfelt gratitude. As God's mercies are new every single morning, overflowing mercies will continue to be a constant well of refreshing comfort, encouragement, and strength. It's perfect for personal quiet times, family and dinner table devotions, and small groups. Let this devotional help you get intentional, stay connected to God, and continue loving others. Order your copy of Overflowing Mercies, 100 Meditations on the Tender Heart of God today at moodypublishers.com or wherever great books are sold. Goads, 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 Careful. goads. <laughs> goads. What is what, what are goads? Um, so the, the a different translation says it is useless for you to fight against my will. Ah. Um, so it's a it's a reference to when oxen are being um, driven along wearing a yoke, and the goad would be the little the little uh, whip, big whip that you would use to keep the stick that you would use to keep guiding them. And so it's just basically saying, you know that this is the path that I'm setting you on and there would be no point in you trying to deviate from it. And so then he's going to build out after this, how he's doing the only thing that he can do. Like he'll say in verse 19, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heaven. So he's saying, he's making the argument, I am in submission to God's will. Yeah. Yeah. He, the Damascus road experience is not just, and there's been a lot of talk about this recently. Um, the Damascus Road experience is not just the conversion account for Paul. It's his call, and he feels and he feels a unique compulsion in light of the Damascus Road experience that he refers to many times, this being one of the clearer examples of it, where he's like, listen, I could not do but other than what I'm doing now. Yeah, it's not just a conversion. It's a commissioning. Like, yeah. because of what happened to me, I now have to go do this. But yeah. I, think one, <clears throat> I do think, Kyle, I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts on this, too. I think one thing that's instructive about this just for everyday Christians is one of the most powerful things that God can use is our own personal stories mm-hmm. here. And so what you see Paul doing and what we've seen him done in the last few chapters and what we've seen many sermons in Acts or appeals in Acts give is a biblical theology kind of here's how God is bringing his kingdom through his covenant, through the law, through the prophets, through what was given to our fathers. But that's not the only way we make appeals to the gospel. Paul's also very willing to be very personal about I met Jesus and Jesus changed my life. And you can see this pivot of what happened to me. And that's something that can't be argued with, right? It's something that apologetically, I mean, that's one of the reasons when I tell my story about how God saved me, it just, it, it shows people that this is not just a worldview. It is a person who has changed our lives and changed the trajectory of our lives. And so one of the questions that we get in the training program quite a bit is when we're giving people evangelism assignments or encouraging them to have conversations to teach others what they're learning, because that's where real learning happens when you're able to articulate it is not just to, you know, can you tell the story of the Bible? Yeah, we would love for you to be able to do that. And we want to train you to do it, but also make it personal, personal, like just talk to your neighbors about what God's done in your life. Like how has Jesus changed your life? And that's really what Paul's doing here at one of the highest political levels possible, something that would be very looked down upon today, just saying, hey, Jesus changed my life. 
and yeah. this is what happened to me. And here's, and you, you, you can't say that it didn't because it obviously this, this, you know, massive change of direction in my life happened for some reason. And it happened because I met Jesus. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that, um, there is, uh, we often talk about, uh, the discipline of epistemology is the question of how do we know what we know? Right. right? So epistemology, how do we know what we know? And a lot of times when we think about how we know what we know, we are, we are kind of concluding that truth is basically a set of propositions that we come into agreement to or assent to or we're convinced into believing. And that the primary way that we encounter truth, or that's probably not the best word to use, but the primary way that we come to know truth is that we are able to test it, see it, search it, kind of push and prod on it, that truth is primarily an idea that we can kind of download and then communicate. But that's one dimension of truth. Truth is also encounter. It's like, if I gave you a list of 10 facts about my wife and I asked you, do you know my wife? You could say, I know 10 things about your wife, but you couldn't say, I know Lauren. You just couldn't. And you certainly couldn't say it. And now her friends could say it in a way that would be different than how just somebody who had 10 facts. Her family might be able to say it in a way that's a little bit different than how our friends would say it. And me, as her husband, would be able to say it in a way that's different than all of those people. Yeah. Um, and so there is truth that is, here are the ideas, the core essentials. And that's one very significant and essential element to how we think about meaningfully articulating who God is and what he's done in our life. But another and no less valid way of exploring that, although they must be done in concert with one another, is the experience or encounter we have with uh, the person of Christ. Um, and, I, and that's what Paul's doing. Wow. <clears throat> you just wrote a book. <laughs> it's going to be Epistemology, Experience, and Evangelism by Kyle Worley. <laughs> no, I, I, to, make, to make a shameless plug for a couple of good books right now, uh, Esther Meek has a great book called A Little Manual to Knowing. Yeah. That's a very small book that gets into this, and she's fantastic on this topic. And then if you... Um, really are interested in it loving to know that's a big uh, one is, is a big one and it's much more dense the manual the smaller book is a great place to start but loving to know is, is also fantastic on this and then drew johnson has done some interesting stuff with a hebrew philosophy of knowledge as well and he's got a little book that's kind of similarly inclined to thinking about the value of encounter and ritual and knowledge anyways just some plugs for some good books on that topic um Okay, but Paul, he keeps, he keeps articulating this defense. Like uh, Jen got us there. Oh, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this heavenly vision. Talks about the Damascus experience. The Jews seized me in the temple. They tried to kill me because he was testifying. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And then I love Festus's response in verse 28. He says, I'm sorry, Agrippa's response. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Right? Wait, you jumped over something really good. We're going back. Okay. So Festus flips out in verse 24 and he's like Paul are you out of your mind your great learning is driving you out of your mind right so yes Jen hang on everybody get your coffee <laughs> it's gonna be good I can tell so you know, Festus is like 
whoa, whoa, whoa. You've been, you've overthought the whole thing. And now remember Festus is, a, he's not a Jew, like he doesn't have all the background. And so he's just heard this whole thing laid out and he's like, Basically, he's also saying, dude, you're going to get yourself killed if you keep talking like this. And verse 25, but Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Anyone have any thoughts on this? I'm waiting for you to have yours. Come on, go. You start. You start. Nope, 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 nope. nope. <laughs> um, I think that that um, as much as the, um, the story of our conversion is an appeal to faith, should also understand that it is not an irrational call yeah that rationality is not the enemy of faith um, and that our belief system is not irrational um so often we hear people talk about god's call on their lives as um as the irrational thing like the lord's called me to do this amazing thing that makes no sense whatsoever and, um, and it may be that sometimes that's the way that other people will perceive it because they don't know all of the pieces that have led to the, the place where the Lord has brought you. But, but Paul is basically saying here, what he has said throughout his argument is, this is the most rational conclusion that you can reach based on, on what we know of the law and the prophets. Uh, and this is the most rational conclusion I can reach based on my personal story. It's not counterintuitive at all. And not only is it rational, but in his mind, it is the only conclusion that he could have reached. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're exactly right, Jen. And this is, I've had a little hobby horse the last few weeks, kind of in other conversations around this. <clears throat> but hmm. me, hobby horse, that sounds weird. Uh, doesn't sound like me at all. This is probably personal for me, just, just given kind of my like theological background. But like so often people want to speak as if you have made a rational appeal or that you have learned that you've somehow created an obstacle for people knowing God. You know, shouldn't we just go back when I think it's Acts 4, 24, they saw that these were uneducated and unlearned men, but they had been with Jesus. Mm -hmm. Do we really need to make rational appeals? And should we really learn? Can't we just, as Kyle was just highlighting, shouldn't our epistemology just be encounter? Well, I wasn't, I wasn't saying that. I know you weren't. I know you weren't. I, I, I know you weren't. I'm saying that was one of the things that was one of the things you were highlighting. <laughs> and we see Paul doing the exact opposite here. One of the things that I'm thinking about as I go to, you know, if Storyline votes me in this Sunday, one of the one of the main questions I was getting from some people in the congregation is, how are you going to, you know, Dallas and Denver are very different contexts. Uh, there's a lot of similarities also, but there's just some differences. It's a bit more post-Christian, maybe a bit more secular. Uh, but a lost person's a lost person is a lost person, whether they're, whether they're politically conservative or politically liberal. And what Christians need to be reminded of is that the secular world or the unbelieving world, whatever you want to call it, is not thinking about us and saying, man, they are just too rational for us. Yeah. They're too smart. They just, they're so intellectual. I just, you know, the, the, the evangelicals, they just put too much thought into this. As a matter of fact, it's the exact opposite. The rest of the, it, it's, it's Mark Knoll's book. Uh, he, he wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And his first line is, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there isn't one. But evangelicals always talk about, well, we really, you know, you don't really need to know about God as long as you know him. And it's like, but yeah, but you can't know him unless you know about him. Right. Uh, and so it's, it's essential for us. And Paul's showing us here that we should be making rational appeals, yes, to our experience, but also nobody's making the claim that evangelicals are too rational or that yeah. we've learned too much. 
So let's let's get that out of kind of the, in my opinion, the dialogue around how evangelicals can make appeals. Yeah, it's like what I always say, the heart can't love what the mind doesn't know. <laughs> I just tried to find about 50 ways to say that. That doesn't sound like I'm ripping off Jen. <laughs> well, for as long as I have been sort of tooting that horn, so to speak, I will get the pushback of, well, we don't want to be like the Pharisees, you know, yeah. but these, these people who were so arrogant because of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, you look around at the evangelical landscape, and I just don't see how we can believe that our greatest risk is that we would be arrogant instead of that our greatest risk is that we are ignorant. Mm-hmm. I, I think that we're not uh, that right, it, down. which side we're leaning if you're leaning more toward ignorance or arrogance I think right now it's that people uh, just don't know they don't and that, you know there's a reason we we call the podcast knowing faith yeah um, we, we think that there is great benefit to your mind being conformed um, so that your desires become a product of right thinking yeah that's good so Agrippa is surprised I think at the urgency and the fervency and the persuasiveness of Paul's speech. I mean, Paul's imploring, he's appealing, like he's done many times over. And Agrippa is struck by that. And is like, hey, would you persuade me in such a short time to be a Christian? And Paul says, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I love this about the apostle Paul. And I feel like it's one of the things that at present is, it's a huge burden on my heart, which is that we talk about the apostolic message a lot. I don't know that we talk as much about the apostolic urgency. And I feel like in the Apostle Paul, what you're seeing, you see it here all through the book of Acts. You hear echoes of it in Romans. You can about Romans 9, 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. And you hear here in Paul this real sense of, I do want you to believe. I want you to be as I am, except for in prison. Um, and I'm struck by that. It's a witness, not just again to the content of Paul's message, but to the, the real fervency and passion that he has to see others believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and, and be saved. Um, he then sets self around. He shipped around. He gets on a boat and, uh, we're going to kind of have to like really hatchet this for a time right now, but he sets self around. There's a storm at sea and they end up shipwrecked. I got to tell you, when I was reading this, and I don't know if I'm crazy here, I felt like undertones and echoes of the Jonah story throughout the whole thing. Is that weird? I, I Actually, no, I don't think that's weird. I think that's a good one. And I think the other one that I kept thinking of is Noah. Yeah. Because he basically says, nobody is going to die. We're going to, this, this is an unsinkable ship. Yeah. Um, or, you know, there will be no loss of life. And, and so, uh, and then he's, you know, you see, I mean, he's breaking bread and, and handing out bread to people at one point. Yes. I think there's some really important um, ideas of like, they, they are being carried through the waters to safety on the other side, which yes. is you know, a classic Old Testament image there. And I mean, you can say the Jonah story as well, except Paul is not trying to avoid going to Rome at all. He's doing exactly what he should be doing. Exactly. And I think the other thing about it is that you see this idea of like, God is taking Paul to Rome. Like he, like he's going to get there, just like Jonah was going to get to Nineveh. Now the difference is one of them really wants to go and one of them did not want to go. But the picture of them like, like eating food and then tossing stuff over, right? They're like, they're taking off ballast to just try to make this thing more of a uh, more of a uh, of a safe boat, a safe ship. 
Um, and then it ends up, they recognize some land. Uh, they see some land and they cast off the anchors. They let them in the sea. And then it says they struck a reef. They ran the vessel aground. The boat starts to bust up. And it says the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion wishing to save Paul, there's that again, Jen, where you see that image of uh, a centurion or a soldier stepping in and being like, no, no, no. We like, essentially God's providential hand preservation is just over the apostle Paul. Um, it says he kept them from carrying out the plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard and first make for land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. So we have a little bit of a Titanic situation here, right? Um, <laughs> come on. No, don't do that. It's a shipwreck, dude. Like this is, there's only one Titanic connection in Acts and this is it. You're not gonna let me have that. I mean, if you want to take it, you you can have it. It's <laughs> they all end up safely. They all end up safely on land. Yeah. How far are we going with this in this episode? That was it. That was it. That's okay, it. I got to show you something. Okay. It's my map. Is Thank it- you, Crystal Brummett. <laughs> That's cool. Is it backwards or is it forwards? No, you. We can see it the right we way. Got it right. Okay. So basically you hear this whole thing about all the terrible things that are happening and you're like, I don't understand. I don't understand sailing. I don't understand what's going on here. And, and, and we don't have time to go through all of it, but it's actually an accurate sailing account. Like um, Luke knew enough about sailing that you can see, like it's one of the best um, actually accounts of ancient sailing practices that we have still in record. But basically it says that they couldn't see the stars, you know, like they, which means they couldn't navigate. So they, they keep having trouble after trouble. And then they end up, um, they're over here in this place called Fair Havens, which is actually a terrible name because it was not fair. It was terrible. No one wanted to spend the winter there. And so they make a play to get to Phoenix, which was apparently every bit as nice as if you were to winter in Phoenix in the States. Um, <laughs> they get washed out to sea basically by, by, a, by a hurricane. And so they're out here just zigzagging around uh, actually, I'm doing the wrong side. They're zigzagging around and um, just miracle of miracles. They end up exactly where they were supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, they end up at Malta. And so the Lord is guiding the ship even when um, when it seems like everything is going uh, terribly. And not only that, I thought it's kind of funny that like at one point it says that the sailors um, hadn't been able to eat or drink for, for 14 days. And it reminded me of the zealots. I think we're supposed to think about these people who had who had committed to starve themselves for the purpose of killing Paul. And now we see these people who are basically starving themselves for the purpose of saving the ship um, so that Paul will be delivered uh, whole and hale onto the island of Malta where he is promptly bitten by a snake. This guy's having a rough week. I mean, it's like one of those things are like, you begin thinking, I've been disobedient. Like, this is going so badly. God's trying to tell me something. Shipwrecks bitten by, it's like, that they're like you have done something very bad that's right (laughs) um well we're gonna end our discussion of acts right here um we'll pick this up next week for our last episode in the book of acts we've been in it for almost a whole year now which is crazy um and it's been a fun journey but we're gonna take some questions we've got some questions that have come through right here um we're gonna take some questions and then in a minute after we take a few questions this is gonna feel weird if you're watching it but we'll need to do it for the sake of like the recording of the podcast, I'll actually have to like formally in this podcast and be like, Hey, if there's anything, I'll do the thing where it's like, if there's anything you'd like to know more about and you'll feel like the podcast is ending, but don't go away because we're recording 
another episode. Uh, and we'd love for you to stay on. And if you're just tuning in right now, then you haven't joined on too late. We're going to record a whole other episode. You can submit questions through YouTube chat, which is going on right now. So here's a few of them. I'm actually going to ask you one, and then I'm going to step away to make myself a cup of coffee for a minute. So Here, you want some of mine? Oh, well, that would be, yeah, that'd be great. Let me just, right there. Perfect. Don't ruin your computer. Um, okay, let's start with um, Malia. Well, Malia, we're actually about to get to this question. This question is a good one, but we're about to do a whole episode on it. Common question about COVID-19 I'm seeing is this. Is this a plague like an exodus? What's the best way to explain it? It's not why it's happening. We're going we're gonna to do a whole episode. That's the next episode. So we're going to get to that. I just don't want you to think we missed it. Um, what theologians and Christian writers of color would you recommend reading? My reading is almost totally from the perspective of white writers. Anybody that you guys would be like, hey, here's some people that I'm reading that I think are valuable on, you know, that are outside of, I guess, majority culture reading. I can tell you a really cool uh, thing that just came out. It's actually a, a, a landmark publication. Um, there is a study Bible that has been put out. Um, it's the CSV version, and it's Dr. Tony Evans, who has written all of the the study notes accompanying it. It's, the, it, to my understanding, it is the first time that uh, uh, an African American uh, has has had a study Bible come out where they are the the person who has done all of the work on the on the notes. So, well, someone with a long, long, meaningful ministry. You. Anybody to add to that, JT? I can think of a few people. Yeah, I really like Carl and Karen Ellis. They've done some great work. Uh, c- contemporary Jackie Hill Perry. Um, comes to mind. Amos Young uh, is an Asian writer, an Asian theologian, uh, writing kind of, he's done a lot of work on like disability and theology. He's written some Trinitarian stuff that he and I are not on the same page on, so maybe stay away from that. Um, I mean, Sun John Ra has a great book. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It's just talking about the training program, the book of Lamentations and what lament is and how it relates to love and justice in the world. So that Sun Cha Ra. The book is called Prophetic Lament. Um, a few other folks. Uh, Walter Strickland I, at Southeastern Seminary. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Jarvis Williams at yeah. Southern Seminary has a great book on Paul and Atonement. It's fantastic. Um, you've got. Uh, he's, done, he's actually done a lot of work on on the gospel and racial reconciliation. That's, yeah. been, that's really good. You've got Vincent Bacote, uh, who's at Wheaton. Yep. Is, is he still at Wheaton? He is. Okay. He's got a great book on an introduction to Christian ethics that is timely right now. He's a ethics and philosopher. Uh, and uh, so if you're looking for an ethicist reading, then Vincent Bocote's book on, it's a, it's a great introduction to Christian ethics. Like it's not necessarily, it, although it, pro- it does talk a little bit about racial reconciliation, that's not the thrust of the book. The thrust of the book is just like, do you want to base it primer on Christian ethics from a, yeah. ethics from a Christian worldview? It's really good. Bruce Fields is a well-known professor at Trinity Evangelical Divinity who's written he's – a, he's a theologian. He's written a lot. He's written a, even a book on introducing black theology to the church and majority culture, which is really good. I just read Robert Smith's book, on Doctrine That Dances. Yes. Whoo! Man, that book is good. Yeah. Uh, he's at Gordon Connell or Beeson. He's, he's at Beeson. Yeah, Doctrine That Dances. And you can find some YouTube videos of Dr. Smith preaching. Oh, he's one of the best preachers. Yeah, yeah that you that you will ever hear. Hey, another another preacher that I, I try to listen to at least one or two sermons a month from uh, Charlie Dates. Yeah, oh, yeah. At, up in Chicago at Progressive. I mean, he is uh, he did his PhD in systematic theology at Trinity. He's been pastoring for I don't know fifteen years or so. He's a phenomenal preacher. Friend of the show, Charlie Newbell has some great stuff out there. She's got a great book on unity in the church. She got a great children's book. God's a very great idea, very good idea. We use it with Lydia, and it's awesome. 
Jenny, you have one? Yeah, there's a book out um, fairly recently called His Testimonies, My Heritage, and it was edited by Christy Anya Buile, and it's a compilation of women of color writing on, on the word of God. So um, it's not strictly speaking, like it's not like a commentary necessarily, maybe in the in the most traditional sense of the word, but I think it's a really nice vantage point um, to hear from. Yeah, I was going to say, hopefully Elizabeth Woodson's going to be writing some stuff soon too. Oh, yeah. Great. John Awanchenka has a great new book in the Nine Mark series on prayer. prayer it's yeah. fantastic. It's really good. Um, so, so yeah, there's funny, a lot. funny story about John O. John and I went to Dallas Seminary together, uh, and we played on the same intramural basketball team. And he is a he, he. I might be getting the story wrong. I think he walked on at Baylor, and so we ended up winning the DTS championship solely because he was on our team. We had another guy named Johnny Standard who played at Wheaton. I mean, these guys, like my whole job on the team was to give them the ball. Uh, and then they were just dunking on. Say that again? His name is Johnny Standard. St- Standard. There's no D. S-A-N-A-R-D. Yeah. But he was like a Captain America type guy, like played basketball at Wheaton. Like it was just, you know, kind of clean cut. And man, John, John was so, so good. And compared, you realize us little seminary students were, he was playing a different sport than the rest of us were playing. Sure. Um, Ryan, uh, or this is from Cornerstone Kids. I, the question seems incomplete on here. I don't know if producer Ryan is still looking at that. Maybe she could get the question again, but it says, what resources do you use to get an understanding of the things you're talking about? Like Agrippa, I'm going to, I'm going to complete this question the way that I think it will be complete. What resources, Jim, do you use the understanding of the things you're talking about, like Agrippa's wife uh, uh, or sister was uh, Bernice was Agrippa's sister, but they were in some sort of complex relationship like that observation you made there. Like if somebody's just reading it, I, I, I had just read it three or four times prepping for today. I hadn't done any background study and I did not see that. So, yeah, I think you can just say to, you know, you want to communicate things always in age appropriate ways. And even even the text itself does not explicitly say what their relationship is. So you certainly don't need to feel bound to explicitly say what the relationship is with children. I think you can say Agrippa was a king who came from bad kings and was himself a bad king. Yeah. But what resources did you I think the question they're asking is, how did you find that out? What resources do you use to oh. make the connection? I thought it's something about Cornerstone. Oh, I guess because she was from Cornerstone Kids. I thought she was asking, how do you talk? To- I'm sorry, I missed it. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just basic commentary. That's not hard to find. That's um, so like some of the commentaries that I would go to as a starting point might be um, John MacArthur's New Testament series. Um, I like um, James Montgomery Boyce has been really helpful for this study. And um, I think who else? using i'm blanking anytime you ask me this question i completely blank out on every single well, person well there's incredible commentaries i think that more than anything the idea though is that don't feel bad if you read it and we're like well i didn't know that just based off of a plain right. reading of the text there are some things yeah. that we do have to rely on either some of the uh, historical witness that commentators then are able to capture from primary or secondary or close to the source sources and then they're able to kind of distill that down and help make some connections that we might not know because we're not reading as much of the history of that time. Right. So commentaries are where you can go. And we, you know, uh, you always want to be careful that you don't rush to commentary your first time when studying the Bible, but whenever you're teaching, it is an important step in the process to learn some of the things that may not just be right there 
on the on the front. That's a good study Bible sometimes can help make those uh, points as well, and it, or at least give you the threads to follow. And there's enough textual evidence within the book of Acts that the, that the average reader would have known as soon as they saw King Agrippa, they would have thought back to that earlier. This is one of the reasons it's important to read the whole thing, right? Because you'd be like, wait a minute, is this the same Agrippa? No, it can't be the same one because that guy's dead. Um, but he's got the same name. He's in the same role. So logically, you would assume, oh, my goodness, he's probably in the same family. But even if you didn't make the familial connection, you would know that he's being associated with these party people who came before him. Sorry, guys, that was a notification on my computer. Well, um, we're going to take a brief pause. We're going to end this episode, and then we're going to get ready for the next. I, this, uh, we're going to we're gonna actually take like a, maybe a five-minute break. Can we do that? Yeah. Okay, perfect. So you might see that our videos go dark here so that we can get up and amble around and get what we need to get, but this is not ending. We're going to do another episode, and we'd love for you to stay. Don't leave. So, yeah, don't leave. We're begging you. Um, all right. Bless you guys. See you next time. Grace and peace.